Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty Sessions, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. Please join me as we start liberating dreams one episode at a time. Hello there, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Sessions. And this week, we're excited to introduce to you Hala Smith-Hughes. And Hala has a great story about um, how a sabbatical led to an awesome business, and we can't wait to hear the whole thing. Hala, thanks for being with us. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about Seek and Swoon? Sure. So um, I'm the owner and designer of Seek and Swoon. Um, I design uh, blankets, throws, essentially, um, for your home. They are made here in the U.S. at a family-owned and operated knitting mill. And they're made from recycled cotton. And most of them are inspired by places I've traveled. And it sounds like that was kind of the impetus to all this. And we'll get into that in a second. But I have to ask, like, how do you just start manufacturing throws? Like, what is your experience? What led you to start this product-based business? Give us a little sense of of that for all those listening who are wondering how they too might do that. Sure. Um, I have no experience in textile design, first of all. <laughs> um, I'm, I was a graphic designer for years and then a social media strategist. Um, but I have been thinking about kind of pivoting my career for a long time and um, searching for sort of what that one perfect idea was. And um, the trip, obviously, that maybe we'll talk about in a little bit was kind of the catalyst for what launched me into Seek and Swoon. Um, But I've always been interested in textiles and um, what kind of sent me in that direction actually was I was putting away a baby blanket that was kind of the first item that we bought when we found out we were pregnant with our first son. I was storing it and, um, you know, it just got me thinking about the fact that we purchased this item that we're now kind of holding on forever. And I realized that it was a a blank canvas really for design and creativity. And so that was a piece of the story that kind of led me down this path. But I didn't have any experience in textiles. Um, I didn't know how to go about manufacturing blankets. Um, And I just started doing research like anybody else would, I guess. So I just hopped online and I started researching. And that's sort of what sent me down the path into finding the mill that I ended up working with to manufacture the throws. I have to tell you, it's funny that um, we're having this conversation today. Just this morning, I was on the phone with a client who was who's looking to manufacture uh, a, a different kind of textile. <laughs> and she said, where do I start? Like, how do people do this? And I said, listen to every single manufacturing podcast we've ever done. And everyone starts with Google. Like everyone's like, and then I researched plastic (laughs) and then I met with the plastic person and then I went to a trade show on plastics. You know, it starts, it it seems to start by just a very organic search um, and and that's your story too. So I'm glad you sort of validated that. You said something earlier about when you talked about graphic design and sort of transitioning, you said, I was looking for something. I was looking to transition. 
what, mm-hmm. what were you looking to do? Because as a graphic designer, you had a career, you had a career path. You could surely, if you worked for a company, that's something you surely could have done on your own. What was it that you were looking for? You know, I've spent my entire career providing a service and I think I was just ready to pivot in another direction, in a new direction. And I've also spent my entire career helping other people tell their story and sell their product. And I just wanted to be on the other side of it, really. I wanted to create something tangible and then use the skills that I've honed over the years to tell my own story and put my own product out there. So I think it was kind of threefold, really. And I also wanted to, you know, create something that um, would bring to life some of the other things that are really important to me. And so that's kind of where the travel piece comes in. Um, So why don't we just talk about that? Because we keep saying, let's, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. So tell us about this family sabbatical that you took and how it informed your decision to launch and sounds like even informed the designs themselves. Yeah. um, You know, I'd spent a lot of years trying to figure out how I wanted to pivot my career and what I wanted to do. And I'd I'd come up with a lot of ideas and just really hesitant to launch and sort of move forward. And so in 2015, my husband and I were both freelancing and we decided now is as good of time as as any to, you know, put things on hold for a couple of months and go on a trip. Um, Our sons were two and a half and five at the time. And a lot of people kind of gave us blank stares when we told them that we were going (laughs) to leave for the summer. But we knew that it would never be a perfect time. And um, we just needed to go for it. So we, you know, told our clients that we were going to be taking a a break. And we spent two months traveling uh, through um, Ireland. We were in Ireland for a couple of weeks. Then we were in Spain for a month in three different places. And then we were in Amsterdam for two weeks. And then we stopped over in Iceland on the way home. So we were gone 60 days and we were, I think, in seven, five different countries. Wow. Seven, uh, yeah. So we um, we traveled, you know, via Airbnb and other vacation homes, um, lots of different planes, trains, and automobiles. (laughs) Um, And we didn't work the entire time. We actually just took the summer off, which I can't, still can't really believe that we did that because (laughs) I've never taken that much time off in my entire career (laughs) ever. So, um, but it sounds so, like it was it was research and development as well exactly as, as exactly well as time off. It's a it sounds like right? you were actually sort of working. <laughs> and so yeah, but given the places that you were staying in and what you saw, how how did that inform? Okay, I'm going to go back and do textiles, and I want the mm-hmm. textiles to look like this. Like, tell us a little bit about that. It came later. So um, when I went on this trip, I was hoping that I would come back and have some clarity around kind of what my next step would be in my career. Um, but I, I I, also didn't want to put a lot of pressure on myself because I didn't want to be thinking about it the whole time. You know, I'd spent all these years trying to figure out which direction I wanted to go. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to figure it out, it's going to be while I'm traveling and not working and just opening myself up to any possibility. So we went on this trip. We got back from this trip. That's when my, you know, experience with the baby blanket happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, the idea that the throws would be inspired by travel didn't come to me initially. What happened was I had this idea of designing throws, um, but I knew that I needed 
a story behind them. I mean, coming from the marketing industry for so many years and knowing that the story is really what's interesting and important and what people connect to, um, I knew I had to have a story there. And I also was concerned that I would start designing throws and then I would have some sort of block and not know what to come up with next, you know, in terms of my patterns. So that's when the idea of travel sort of came into the picture. I really took a step back at this business and I was like, all right, if I'm going to do this, I want to make sure that it incorporates all the things that are important to me. And travel is definitely top of the list. So I started thinking about how I could incorporate travel into the business itself. And it just seemed like a natural fit. So each throw is inspired by maybe something that I saw or an experience I had while I was traveling. Um, the Iceland throw, one of the Iceland throws um, called the Kana throw was inspired by the view I had from the airplane as we were flying over the country. Um, the Soul throw is inspired by the sunset from our balcony in Madrid, Spain. And the Krona throw is inspired by um, a textile that I found while I was in Croatia. So each one kind of came about a little bit differently. Um, now when I am thinking about concepts for throws, I'll go through the photos that I took while I was in, you know, each of those countries oh, um, cool. to come up with an idea. So I, it could come from a picture that I've taken or I might even end up, you know, doing a little bit of research on the country itself or looking at photos that other people have taken, but it's always someplace that I've been. I love that. And I love that while there is a story, I, as the consumer, don't need or don't feel compelled to purchase that only because I've been to those places. It actually is a piece of, it's like your experience as the artist. Um, but it's, it's some, it's neutral enough that I can still enjoy it, you know, as opposed to something that is a, a more literal translation of, mm -hmm. um, uh, well, I have to go to Santa Fe to get that right. blanket from Santa Fe. <laughs> um, it, so was that intentional or given your marketing background or was it, um, did you hope that people who actually had had those travel experiences might use the throws as a, as a sort of memory um, a, a particular souvenir of, of those places? I think that I was hoping um, kind of any of the above would happen. And, and you're hoping for sales. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I, you know, I don't expect somebody to see the soul throw and understand right away that it's mm -hmm. the sunset or even they saw a sunset and it looked exactly like this one. I, I worried about that for a little bit. I was like, you know, I'm designing these throws and what if people aren't connected to the patterns? So I think what I realized was that you don't have to interpret Madrid the way that I did. But what I found is that even though your memory of it may be different than mine because you have been there, it's still interesting. And I'm still getting customers who are purchasing throws from places that they've been, even though their interpretation might have been different. Or I'm getting customers who are purchasing throws for friends who went to that place. Um, I met a customer in December. They got engaged in Reykjavik, Iceland. And so they bought that particular throw because it was kind of a memento of their experience there, even though maybe you know, the pattern wasn't necessarily something that they connected to. 
the thought of it was something that they connected to. Sure. And then it becomes a tangible storytelling piece. People come over, they see the throw and they're like, oh, and by the way, whether it's they want to show off that they've traveled to that (laughs) place or it's a memory, a particular memory that they want to, to, um, kind of retell over and over again. That's, Mm -hmm. that's cool. I I love, I love the storytelling part of that. Okay. I want you to go back to the manufacturing. So you have Mm -hmm. this idea, um, for a throw, you have this idea, having had this moment of putting your child's baby blanket away and thinking, gosh, we're going to hang on to this forever. I want to create pieces like that. And you come from a graphic design background. So you have the ability to create design, you know, to put something together, um, Mm -hmm. that people would appreciate, you know, how to do that. You have a skill set. Talk to us about the piece that you didn't know. So you start calling around to manufacturers. Did you know off the bat that they needed to be in the U S did you know that you wanted it to be a family owned manufacturer? Did you know the type of throw that you wanted to make? Like what were the things that you had to overcome or learned along the way? So I knew that there were other throws being made here in the U.S. So I knew that the answer was out there. Let's start there. (laughs) Um, But how to get that answer and find that solution was really difficult and probably one of the most difficult pieces of launching this business because there aren't many knitting mills left in the U.S. Hmm. Um, And with that said, back to the Google conversation, When I Googled this, I really didn't get much. And it was actually the first thing I can say that I Googled that I did not find an answer to. Um, (laughs) Ooh, Google, ouch. (laughs) Right, right. Google, Google let me down. (laughs) And the reason Google let me down was because these small knitting mills, they are kind of old fashioned in a way, I guess, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better way of explaining it. They don't, they do not have websites they aren't listed really anywhere. So I was coming up extremely empty-handed. I actually found textile mills all over the country, and I emailed mill after mill after mill with photos of what I wanted to create. I emailed over 100 mills. Wow. I kept track of every single one of them. And out of those 100 mills, I had probably less than 10 who I started conversations with, and then less than five who actually told me that they could create these throws. What were the things in the conversations that whittled it down from the hundred to the 10? What were, what were you asking for? Was it uh, the size, the quantity, the, the quality? What was it that helped you to determine which 10 to go after? So this type of throw that I'm designing takes a very particular kind of equipment. Mm -hmm. There's only two manufacturers in the world that make it. Um, And so I was essentially looking for the equipment. And that's what led me down the path that helped me find the mill because I was coming up empty-handed, but I knew that there was an answer. And so what I decided to do is I decided to hunt down the equipment instead of the people. Oh, I had wow. to approach it That's from a different CSI perspective. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, I had to kind of think about it a little bit differently because I knew that there was a solution, but the way that I was going about it was not working. And because these mills were not really listed anywhere, it was I was having a hard time finding them. So what I ended up doing is I ended up contacting the manufacturer of the equipment and they got me in touch with um, someone who then got me in touch with the mill that I ended up working with. 
That is brilliant. So, I don't think so, I've ever heard anything like that. That is, I'm so impressed. <laughs> well, you know, I'm kind of tenacious when it comes to solving problems, I yeah. guess. And I could easily give up if I wasn't sure that there was an answer, but I knew that there was, and I just needed to figure out who these people were. <laughs> well, just, just hearing you say that makes me have a, a, a real sense of who you are, even as an entrepreneur, that that Aww. tenacity um, probably rears its head time and time and time again. It wasn't just that one time of looking for a manufacturer. Um, so anyway, continue with, with, so you find the manufacturer of the machinery that makes the quilt, right. you identify who's purchased these machines and hope that they're local and they're able to do the small runs that you probably need. Yeah. Um, like I said, there's only a few mills out there that even make these throws anymore. And so they're not woven, they're knit. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to work with somebody very local, but unfortunately nobody has that equipment very close to me besides Nike and Adidas, and they weren't probably going to loan me their machinery. So Probably um, not. That was a good bet. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did locate some people that have this equipment, but they weren't able to make throws large enough because mm -hmm. you can buy these knitting machines in different sizes. So um, it was a lot of trial and error and learning about the equipment and um, learning about the process and figuring out what the, I mean, I remember spending days trying to figure out what to call these throws. Like, I didn't know if they were knit or wo woven. I didn't know what kind of knit they were. And so I spent days just trying to figure out what terminology do I use so that when I email these mills, they know exactly outside of showing them a photo, they know exactly what type of blanket I'm trying to manufacture. Sure. Um, so that was a little bit of a, I mean, that was a little bit of work in itself. Um, and then I finally got that figured out. And then I finally got connected to this person who connected me to a mill. I ended up talking to another mill early on and running some samples and it just was not quite coming together. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up locating the mill that I am working with now. And they sent me my first, I sent them a design and they sent me my first blanket. And it was sort of like, you know, the clouds opened up and the Aww. angels started singing. <laughs> uh, how great. That's cool. So For that both of exciting. you, that's cool. I mean, that yeah. you're able to employ these people to do the work that I'm sure doesn't come often for them and then for you to also mm -hmm. be able to realize this, this dream of starting this business. So we've yeah. talked about something where there was a great learning curve, where you really, from soup to nuts, you had to figure this out. You didn't come with any prior knowledge. You just came with an idea. I want to mm -hmm. talk for a minute about an area where you came equipped with a lot of knowledge, given your background with um, a boutique social media and digital communications consultancy. You really understood what it was like to work as a big brand and to work with big brands. And you've worked with brands like Tillamook and Whole Foods and Kind and Staples, to name a few. Mm -hmm. How did that experience inform the work that you're doing now? And you mentioned earlier the story piece, knowing coming from a marketing background, knowing that the story was important um, in association with these throws. But what else did you need to do or what else did your knowledge inform in terms of next steps? Okay, I've got the story. I've got a blanket. Mm -hmm. I found a, ma a manufacturer for the throw. Now what? Now do I? how do I get it into the audience, um, the hands of the audience that I, I want to know that this exists? What did you yeah, have to so do? I think the story is a really big piece of that, obviously. Um, I needed to figure out what my own story is from my perspective. And then I needed to figure out 
what's interesting about that story for other people. Why would they purchase, you know, a throw other than because they were drawn to the pattern? What other way can I build a relationship and create something that resonates with them? And so I needed to figure out how to tell that story in like an interesting, relatable way. And then I needed to decide how to use that story in different applications. Um, So for me, you know, my work in social media is really about storytelling and brand awareness and building relationships with consumers and the media and all of those things. And I have to say that it's been really hard for me to do it for myself. Mm. And I also have to say that it's not necessarily been something that I have super enjoyed doing. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that funny? But I hear that all the time that... Do you? (laughs) Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it goes back to the cobbler's kids don't have any shoes. It's sort of like I can do for other people. I can create, I can advise, I can recommend. But then when it's time for me to do it for myself, there, there, I think there's an an amount of emotional uh, toll that you don't, you don't carry when you're doing it for the other person. But when it's yours, it's like, oh my gosh, everything feels a little bit more like a burden. Um, So I get it. And it's something again, that I hear over and over again. So tell us, how did you, what part did you not like? Let let me ask uh, that very specific question. What was the part that you were like, ugh? (laughs) I don't think that there's any part to this business that I don't like, to be honest with you, but I do feel, um, that there are pieces of it that I enjoy more than others. Um, But in particular with the social media piece. Yeah. um, You know, I have kind of lectured, not lectured, but I have, well, with my family who who own small businesses, I've lectured them on, you guys need a marketing plan. You need a content calendar. You need all of these things. They'll make your life so much easier. And those are the things that I'm not doing for myself (laughs) as much as I should be. Um, I know that I need to be, and I've started that. But when I first launched, I didn't necessarily have a plan, which is the complete opposite of what I encourage small businesses to do. Um, So for me, I just wanted to get off the ground because I'd spent so many years, you know, kind of talking about it and thinking about it and not doing it. And I knew I just needed to do it. So I kind of skipped over some of the other things that were important. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, I think um, knowing my story, I feel like was the easy part, but then coming up with a plan, a sort of consistent ongoing plan to get the story out there I could probably be doing a better job of, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, we all can, obviously, but it, I think hearing you say, look, I'm somebody who knows better. I'm somebody who's mm-hmm. done this for other people. And even I struggle with it gives us all a, kind of some room to, to breathe and say, okay, it's not just me. And this is hard work and it is a toll. And it, and it's a lot when you're thinking about all the hats you need to wear um, it, it was easy for you, I'm sure, as a marketing person to look into somebody else's business and say, you're not doing this, but you were isolated. Your work mm-hmm. was isolated to that one particular thing. Now that you have to wear all these hats, you're aware of like, oh my gosh, where do I fit this in? How do I fit it in? And if it's not something I naturally gravitate towards, then I'm going to want to spend more time doing these other things that I love a little bit more. Right. I'll yeah. There's, there are a lot of hats. I mean, when, when you are the designer and coming up with packaging and, you know, doing a little PR and all of these other pieces um, and doing the shipping and, you know, doing your own accounting, um, it is a lot to juggle. And so 
um, I've had to kind of figure out, okay, what of these things should I keep doing on my own? Am I the place where I could hire any of this out? And what am I good at too? You know, what I'm good at for your company might not be exactly what I'm good at for my own as well. That's, I think that's most people come into this with some kind of experience. And I think that's a really great piece of advice or wisdom for people to not assume that the thing that they were good at for someone else is the thing that they're going to be good at within their own company. Um, yeah. And again, thank you again for um, <laughs> a, a little a little opportunity for us to to breathe easy and say, OK, based on that wisdom, maybe I can rethink where I position myself or the or the areas that I spend time in and the areas that I perhaps should give to someone else. Let me talk to you about all the things that you mentioned, you know, in that is a, the juggling of what should I be as a retailer? Should I or as a manufacturer of product? Should I retail and directly communicate and um and brand and have a relationship and ship to my customer? Should I be a wholesaler that's selling in quantity this thing I've produced to, you know, to many stores that are retailing it? Or should I develop these dropship relationships where the retailer isn't housing um, any inventory, but when the sale comes in, then the shipment comes from me? How did you decide which one to do? Are you doing some um, you know, a little bit of more than one of them, or are you focused on one? And in this economy, when retail is struggling, um, how do you make that sort of determination based on the type of product you have, the type of audience you want to serve, and where the margin exists and is best for your business? Well, I can't say I had a strategy going into this because I've never manufactured and distributed a product, period. Well, I actually have, but it was a very long time ago. It was on a smaller, even like a smaller scale, I would say. Um, So when I launched Seek and Swoon, I know I wanted to sell on my own website. With that said, I went back and forth between my own website and Etsy, and I decided to just launch with my own site. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you, do you remember why? Um. You know, I actually did launch Etsy for a really short time just to see what would happen, and I really Mm -hmm. didn't get much traction there. Um, And I felt that I just needed to simplify. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to be in one place online, and that was just purely because I was, you know, doing everything on my own, and I wanted to simplify where I focused my attention. If I would have stuck with it, maybe... I could have done really well on Etsy. I know a lot of people that do, and I know a lot of people that run both their own site and Etsy, and they do great. Um, but I just decided for myself, I just wanted to focus. Um, I haven't ever considered drop shipping, and I haven't ever been asked to drop ship, actually. Um, and then wholesale for me, the reason that I decided to wholesale was because I really wanted to be a part of my community here in Portland as a designer. Um, and as a small business owner, and I felt that retailing at local shops in Portland would be a great way for me to get involved in the community here with the intention Mm -hmm. that I would also sell in other stores. So for me, it was kind of a relationship Mm -hmm. situation. Like I wanted to build relationships with people here in Portland. I wanted to form partnerships and I wanted to, to support other people who kind of had this dream that they are now pursuing by opening brick and mortar. Um, So that's why I wanted 
to wholesale. And I also, I have a product that people want to touch and feel. Yeah. I think that's really important. Um, so that is another reason. Um, you know, my margin on wholesale obviously isn't as good as if I were to just sell straight to the consumer. Um, and I wasn't going to wholesale my baby throws at all because the margin was so low, but I had people interested. And I was like, you know, if you're interested and you don't mind that it's not a big markup, I'm fine with it because I'm building and growing a brand. And I'm also creating relationships with people. And I think I just need to do this for the business right now and we'll see what happens. Sure. Um, I I like that relationship was a big part of it for you. I like that you came at it from a, I'm building a brand. I want to get this out there and I'm going to put a premium on just developing these relationships with people, with the consumer, as well as these other retailers. Um, Has it been what you wanted it to be? Are you selling on both platforms um, if you were to go back and look at maybe sales projections, are you doing what you thought you'd do on your retail business and what, I mean, I'm sorry, on your online business and what you thought you'd do in your wholesale business, or have you had to make some adjustments? Um, to be honest, I didn't know what to expect. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am happy with how things turned out the first year. Um, well, that's, let's celebrate that. I don't yeah, hear that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel... I feel good. I launched in the fall of 2016. So I okay. sort of feel like 2017 was like year one for me because it was yeah. right before Did you do Christmas. your taxes for 2017? Yes. <laughs> Were you surprised and happy? I was. <laughs> <laughs> it's always like, oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And then I do the taxes. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> what happened? You know what? I was pretty much where I thought I was going to end oh, good. up. Um, but with that said, I didn't necessarily have an idea of what that would look like when I started. Right. I mean, I didn't have anything to gauge it against or to measure it against. Um, I will say that my goal was to come out of year one not in debt. And I came out of year one, not in debt. That's fantastic. (laughs) That's awesome. So what do you think if somebody was asking you for advice, what do you think that would be due to? If they said, I'd love to come out, you know, I heard this podcast. Um, can you talk to me for five minutes? What do I need to do to ensure that I don't incur any debt after year one? Is it the volume of products Mm. that you created? Is it the way you priced your blanket? Is it, I'm sorry, your throw? What what do you think that if you had to pinpoint one or two things, what would you assign that to? That's a really good question because I feel like 2017 was a lot of trial and error and figuring out Mm -hmm. what worked and what didn't. And, um, I think I was pretty lean on everything. You know, I was manufacturing in very small batches. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, which required me to really keep close tabs on what I had and when I needed to reorder so that I didn't run out, that kind of thing. Um, right. Figuring out when my customers were buying um, and they were buying when I had sales, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, um which is interesting because that's not always about price. Sometimes that's just about mentality that if you were to charge, if you were to have your original price set at 200 and then you charged at your 165 price, then they would jump on that. So it's not always because the price is not set accurately. Sometimes it's just the fact that it's on sale motivates them to move. 
Yeah. And I obviously am not exactly sure what that looks like or what yeah. their motivation was, but I do know that whenever I would have a sale that, um, obviously that would bring in the most revenue for me. Um, sure. and also figuring out sort of my season, you know, I, I knew pretty early on that, um, I wanted to be involved in some like on-site events, some, some shows, some holiday fairs, things like that. But I also know that they are a ton of work and I didn't want to do a lot of them. Um, and I guessed that it would make the most sense for me to focus that attention during the holidays rather than the rest of the year. Because in Portland, right. we have a lot of great events like that. Some of them are high end. And I really didn't think that being involved in those in the middle of summer was going to be beneficial to me. Um, so I did a couple small events during the holidays and it was really nice to be able to talk to the customer and meet people who said that they were following me on Instagram and, you know, that oh, kind of nice. thing. So it's like, yeah. you know who I am? Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's paying it's attention to, be, to what I'm doing. It's good to be known. That's cool. <laughs> um, so I want to I say something really quickly. Mm -hmm. Just when you decided to do these holiday fairs, can you just tell us what determined which one you'd say yes to and which one you'd say no to? Because I think people get overwhelmed when they have these sort of pop-up opportunities. So yeah. I want you to finish your story, but I also wanted to make sure you told us that. Yeah, I think that um, I did a small one and then I did kind of like a medium-sized one. And I vetted them against the other types of vendors that would be there. Um, so that was, that was, you know, and one was really expensive to be involved at least I thought it was kind of on the higher end and the other one was not very expensive at all. So it wasn't really the price that drove me. It was more about, it was really about are the people who are going to be interested in my product going to walk through that door and want to spend sure. money. Sure. So I talked to other vendors who had been involved in events in previous years to see how successful they were, but I paid really close attention to the other vendors that were going to be there to see if they would align and if the price point aligned because I'm not selling 20, 30, even $40 pairs of earrings, you know, I'm selling a $165 blanket. Sure. And did it prove to be um, a good move um, to do those two events during holiday? Will you do more of that in the following year? I think so. Like I said, I feel, at least for me, um, being a part of the Portland Artisan Network um, is really valuable. And I loved meeting the other vendors in person and supporting them. And we now support each other. Um, I also loved meeting the customer. So you know, I think one of them did really well for me. The other one was kind of slow, but I think it was slow for everyone that was there. Um, so I think I'll just take that knowledge going into the next year and probably do something similar, maybe do one or two holiday shows. Um, but really, you know, so that I can meet people face to face and let people touch and fill the blankets. That's why I'm doing it. Yeah, it becomes a, an opportunity for market research. It becomes an opportunity for you to just get feedback and use these people as sort of a, a sample group of what, 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 do, what do they want? What do they want next yes. as I start to develop I learned this. a lot. I learned a yeah. lot from comments and yeah. feedback and answering questions. And um, so, yeah, it was a learning experience for me and very beneficial. Yeah, and when you think of the investment of, you know, buying the booth space, if you will, and you look at it from that point of view, it can actually accelerate what you're able to do in your business for the following year. So it's if you're smart about it, and, and you were in looking for the ideal customer to be coming through, then that information is really valuable. Right. I also want to say something um, 
that you brought up, and I'm saying this more to the audience that's listening, we gave you a big kind of shout out for not for ending the first year without having debt. But I want to say that debt isn't a bad thing. And now that you have this information, um, you might be able to, or you are in a position to determine in what season, uh, which type of throws, uh, what retailers, you know, if a retailer came to you and said, Hey, we want, 100 throws and you said, okay, well, I don't have the cash flow for those 100 throws at that point, taking on some debt to, Mm -hmm. to meet that isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's often the thing that will move us forward. I think when we get out of balance and when debt becomes dangerous is when, um, it's not manageable and we're, and we're throwing more, um, money into something that, that is, that doesn't have the potential to be realized as a sale. So just, I just want to make sure that, um, the audience understands that. And I also want to make sure that as you move forward in determining what your next steps are, that you've, this has been an awesome year of, of research, client research, understanding the market, understanding your sales cycle, and could perhaps be your second year story could be, yeah, we took on a little debt, but we needed to in order to expand. So yes. just wanted to, and wanted I to almost did. Up. Let me say I almost yeah. did at the end of the year take on some debt because I was concerned about manufacturing for the holidays. Um, so I was sure, very naturally. close to taking actually out a small business loan to get me through bulking up inventory for the holidays. And I, I kind of waited to the last minute and fortunately I didn't have to do it. So that was a little lucky, honestly. <laughs> I feel like it was very lucky. Um, and let me say one more thing too. When I say that I came out of the year not in debt, I was very, very barely into the green. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, but like I said, my goal was, you know, if I could come out of year one not in debt, that would be awesome. If it doesn't happen, I know it's kind of rare that that doesn't happen. Um, but like I said, I think I just operated as lean as possible and, um, I guess that ended up working. <laughs> Thank you so much for being so honest and transparent about that. I think that in in telling that story and in being honest about that story, I think, again, it provides a little bit of a roadmap for people, but it also says to them, okay, when she says she didn't have debt, she doesn't necessarily mean she cleared $100,000. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. So I appreciate that because I think we take these stories and, we're, and we measure ourselves against them and we're like, oh, Hala did it this way and apparently I suck because that's not my story. So thank thank you for that. Sure. I, I think it's super helpful. I'm going to transition us because we're we're you've already given us so much good stuff, but I want to transition us into the second half of the interview where we really kind of pick your brain um, and try and get resources and tips and information that would help us with our business, regardless of product base or service. So let's talk specifically about product base since that's what you're doing. What do you think the first steps would be for somebody who's like, okay, I listened to Hala's story or I have my own idea for a product-based business and I'm ready to go. Is it really creating a prototype? Is it starting with who is the manufacturer? Like where does one begin? You know, it's probably really specific to what kind of product you're going to be creating. For me, the design piece, you know, well, it's kind of easy, I guess, because it's just me on my computer designing something and shipping off a file. With that said, I learned a lot about the file 
production piece through this mm-hmm. process because it wasn't as easy as I thought. And is that um, all the vectors and things well, like that? Is that what you, you would think? Um, <laughs> yeah. And if anybody out there understands design, I didn't know this when I was creating these files, and I had to learn it sort of the hard way. But you know, a throw is made up of stitches, and I learned that every pixel of my design is one stitch. So I literally oh, am designing wow. these throws pixel by pixel, stitch by stitch. But that nobody was there to tell me that. I had to figure this out because I got a throwback and it was a little bit wonky looking and I couldn't figure out why. And so it took me weeks to figure out that I had to design these throws pixel by pixel. So um, that doesn't directly answer your question. But what I'm saying is there's kind of challenges behind products depending on how they're made. Um, So for me and for anybody that's having something manufactured, I think finding a manufacturer that you can trust is really, really important. Finding a manufacturer that you can have conversations with, that you can communicate with, that answer your email fairly promptly, um, I think is really important because at the end of the day, they are sustaining your business. They are like, my mill is my partner. And if my mill goes down, I go down. (laughs) Um, So building a relationship with your manufacturer and finding a manufacturer that gives you what you need and that you can trust um, I think for me at least has been a really important part of this process. That's consistent. I think with other things we've heard when we've talked to people who are manufacturing, that that relationship is really key mm-hmm. and being sort of partners in that, you know, where systems are developed based on how they work and how you need to work going into the actual plant and understanding what they need so that you, when you're articulating what you need, it's, there's some context there. So I, it seems very consistent with other things we've heard. And I think it's a great piece of advice for somebody who's setting up that product-based business is to really understand who is your partner in manufacturing that, especially if it requires bigger machinery and, you know, mm-hmm. something outside of, outside of what you could do yourself. Um, you basically have taken this passion for storytelling and travel and you've integrated it into a physical product and something else that I didn't touch on earlier um, is the importance of something that's sustainable um, and and how that's incorporated into these seek and swoon products. Do you feel like, let me ask it this way, is your advice to somebody who would, would want to launch a business that somehow pa- their passion is incorporated in some way? And I don't want to put too much on passion because it's a big, it's mm-hmm. kind of a hot topic of like, oh, I'm, I don't know what I'm passionate about. How do I figure out what I'm passionate about? And I think it stunts people's curiosity and their ability to stumble into something that they might enjoy. But do you think it's important for us to incorporate something that's meaningful to us into our business? Yes. And I'm glad that you made that distinction because, um, that the answer to that question is something that I have struggled with a bit over the years because I've had a lot of other business ideas and I think they were good ideas, but they weren't necessarily things that I were passionate about. And mm-hmm. so I think I think it prevented me from moving forward. So what I would say is I think you need to move forward with something that you care about and that you believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think passion is a pretty strong, intense word. So I think separating passion from believing in is kind of key um, because at the end of the day, we are you know, putting our blood, sweat, and tears into something 
that's difficult and that has a lot of ups and downs. And we need to wake up every morning and feel pretty good about what we're doing. And we need to enjoy it just like anything else. You know, we need to enjoy it. And I think we work for ourselves because we're driven by other things and because we're pursuing something that we love. And so, yeah, I think it needs to be something that we kind of hold, hold up high. Sure, sure. Or is in line with our core values. Exactly. Um, like the sustainability piece or whatever yeah. for you. So you, with Seek and Swoon, you offer several product lines. I mean, they're all throws, but you have the home line, the baby line, and the wedding line. Mm-hmm. Now, do you recommend as we, and this could be a service-based company or a product-based company, do you recommend that people offer various product lines that hit different users or do you recommend that we go deeper with an, uh, the same user? Mm-hmm. So try and hit the same user in a different way. So as an example, maybe you would do all baby and it would be throws, hats, onesies, you know, little booties, yeah. that sort of thing versus I only do throws, but I do them for these different um, demographics. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that question. For me, the reason that I decided to launch a couple of different products was because I felt like I did need to open my market up. You know, um, I know that the baby market is big and mm-hmm. um, I knew that launching baby throws would open myself up to a lot of new and different people in an industry that people spend money in, in an industry of women who support each other and who collaborate in a big way. Um, and same with the wedding throws, you know, I knew that the wedding industry is a really big industry. And so if I could go that direction and still, you know, um, still maintain my product, but open myself up to bigger markets, it would give my brand a chance to grow. Um, I'm actually working with a boutique hotel here in Portland. They're expanding um, to another location across the street. And my throws are going to be in every room of the hotel. Oh, how cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Can you tell us the name of the hotel or is that still No, I can tell you it's called the Jupiter Hotel. And I believe their um, grand opening is in April. Um, so that is very cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. I've been a customer of the Jupiter hotel for years. And, um, but what that hopefully will do is once again, open myself up to being able to work with other hotels. And so it's just giving me the opportunity to reach more people and to share my product and to tell my story in a different way and to hopefully grow the business. So I felt like for me, I needed to go that direction. I couldn't think narrowly. I needed to think a little bit bigger. And so, um, So I think that if you have a service or a business that allows you to open yourself up to a bigger market, but then stay, you know, um, stay relevant to who you want to be as a company without diluting that story and that message and compromising the things that are important to you, I think it's a win-win. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great advice. Thanks for that. I'm curious, how did the... um the hotel find out about you? Were they in one of the retail locations and saw it? Did they stumble on your site through social media? What was, how did they find you? Right after I launched, um, I ended up in the Oregonian gift guide. So that was in 20... Naturally. It was 2016. (laughs) It was 2016. I didn't even know I had made it in. Somebody sent me a text and was like, congratulations on getting into the Oregonian. And so anyway, uh, the owner of the Jupiter saw the throw in the newspaper and sent me an email. 
that's that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Well, congratulations on that too. Thank you. Um, We've been working on this for like a year, going. so I'm excited for this to finally come together. <laughs> oh, that's cool. We can't wait to see it on social. I'm sure there'll Thank be some you. pictures. So. Um, this rolls right into the, some of the great press that you've been getting. And I think as a communications expert, somebody who's worked in the social media space, do you re- recommend that we should hire a publicist? We should hire a social media you know, associate to kind of spend time helping us create that content, schedule that content? Um, or should we be DIYing it ourselves? Um, and how do we, if we are to DIY it, how do we get into the minds and hearts of editors and influencers kind of in, in our early bootstrap years? So um, once again, I don't know that there is a right or wrong answer. I actually have a degree in PR, although it's kind of an outdated degree. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So um, I knew that, you know, I trusted myself to tell my story to the local press, but I knew that I could use some help outside of that. And um, I got a lot of great press last year that I feel very fortunate about. And I really owe it all to the PR company that I ended up working with. Um, So um, I ended up partnering with a small boutique agency out of LA who was doing great work with some other local companies here in Portland. Um, I'd seen their work. I was fans of the brands that they were working with. Um, So I decided to give it a shot and we, you know, partnered together. Um, And I've been really happy with the results. And I think what I've learned about PR through this experience is that finding an agency or individual who has the right relationships established really makes all the difference. You know, um, the gals I work with, they haven't earned trust with the media. So the editors know that if they... Um, hear from so-and-so at my agency about a new client, it's probably the right fit because she, you know, is only going to pitch it if she thinks it's a good fit for the magazine or for the outlet. So, you know, the people that I work with last year, they have had the relationships built in all the right places for my company. It might not be the right fit for another company. So I think if you're thinking about working with PR, Um, find an agency that aligns with your business, find an agency that's garnered good press from the outlets that would make the most sense to you, that would be the right partners for you, you know, um, figuring out who your audience is, looking at that list of magazines or online sites, and then figuring out what brands are getting press there, and then finding that agency that's getting the press. I think kind of working backwards, you know. Sure. That's um, great advice. I think a lot of people need to just run through, look look through your the masthead of your favorite magazines, identify who the editors are that you want to be working with. And then when you're interviewing PR firms, ask them specifically about their relationships with those people. Um, it makes you look m- more informed. And, um, and gives you a little bit of a heads or a head up or some leverage, but it also absolutely to your point, I hear people all the time say, Oh, my cousin is in PR. And it's like, but if your cousin is in PR for selling like rowboats, that's not really going to help you if you're making, you know, hammered 
14 karat gold rings or whatever. Yes. So, yes. um, so I, I like <laughs> Elizabeth's always laughing at my specificity <laughs> when it comes to these, these little anecdotes, but no, I think it's, 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 it's an important distinction to make. And, um, one thing that sort of, I want to ask you about is most people don't go into their first year having hired a, a PR firm. Does mm-hmm. that come from your knowledge of the, you know, your own background in public relations or your own background in understanding the importance of marketing? Or, I mean, did you ever think that you wouldn't hire them? Did you think that you would DIY it? Because most people wait until they're somewhere closer to year three or even five before they have the revenue Mm -hmm. um, or before they think it's a value or understand its value. Um, I wasn't sure when I launched what I was going to do about PR. Um, But I was aware of this agency and I really trusted them and I felt that they would be a good fit for me. And so we just had a conversation and I was just like, you know, this is what I'm doing. Do you think, I trust you guys, do you think that there are legs here? Like, do you think that Mm -hmm. we could get some press? And I believed that they would be honest with me about that. Um, I initially hired them to pitch the wedding throw story. And then we ended up kind of going just brand in general. Um, So I, you know, I didn't put all my eggs in that basket, but I knew that in order to get the word out, it wasn't just going to happen through word of mouth. And if I was serious about this, I needed to figure out what made the most sense to spend budget on. And for my business, I felt that PR was going to be really beneficial to growing the brand. And um, I am bootstrapping some of the rest of it. Like I'm pitching sure. my local press and because I really feel it's important to build relationships with them. Um, so I'm taking care of, you know, telling my story to the local press and hopefully building long-term relationships with them. So they kind of learn my story and can grow with me too. Um, but... I definitely feel that it was worth my time and budget working with the PR company that I partnered with last year. I mean, I've seen a lot of PR efforts not work either, not specifically with me, but, you know, I've worked with clients who have spent money on PR. And so I think it's just a super thoughtful decision. I think you just have to do a lot of research and it's really all about who you're partnering with. I think that's really the key. What what metrics did you need to see to say this is working? So for example, if somebody says to a PR firm, okay, I'm going to hire you for six months, but I need to understand kind of what is the ROI here <laughs> for me? Do Because it's so hard to yes, really understand, did that in-style feature piece convert into actual sales or do I just have a lot of people saying, I saw you in in-style? Like, it's almost like you want to be able to say, great, did you purchase anything? Yeah, did you go to my <laughs> website? So how did you know that? And what's a metric that you might recommend that we look at after a six-month time frame, let's say? I mean, I think the answer to that is different for everybody. And I, you know, I work with this question when I consult with social media too in my consultancy. Um, and every brand kind of has a different answer. I understand marketing enough to know that, you know, press coverage often doesn't automatically convert to sales. Yeah. And I think that not a lot of people understand that. So I know that it is a long-term process and that I am growing awareness over the course of time. 
Um, for me, getting exposure was my metric because they could pitch and not get anything. But I felt that the amount of press that I got last year, I was really pleased with. And um, it was kind of beyond what I had expected, I guess, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Some mm -hmm. of it, some of it I could um, directly correlate back to sales um, others, not so much. And it was actually interesting to look at the data on what coverage drew traffic to my website and what coverage didn't. Some of the bigger pieces drew less traffic than some of the smaller ones. So that's learning as well. Like, let's look at these numbers and really analyze what was working and what's not so that when we go into, you know, our next round, if we decide to continue working together, we know where to spend our time. Um, so I, like I said, I think that answer is sort of different for everybody, yeah. but yeah. but I wasn't expecting, you know, a lot of sales directly after um, an article would go up because I know that that's not necessarily how it works. So I sort of I'm already went send, into it understanding that. <laughs> I'm going to send the link to this podcast to like three clients because oh. <laughs> that I'm constantly saying when they talk about, we just need to hire a publicist. I'm like, yes, you do, but it's not because we're going to convert sales. This, that's not, that's not how that happens. Now, what it does do is it primes the pump. So we are going to have, you're going to get all this exposure. And over the course of a year or two years, you're going to see that come back to you because yeah. somebody's going to see the, the, in your case, the throw in three different magazines or two blogs or a bunch of social media kind of influencer campaigns. And they're going to eventually be like this. I love this company. And then they're going to a wedding, they're, you know, throwing a baby shower, they're buying one for their home, whatever that the opportunity to purchase one comes up and you come to mind. And that's really how I think how you have to think of, of public relations and that it's, it's a long, long, long game. Yeah, and it's and an important one. And I also think it depends on what your product is. I don't really yeah. have an impulse item. Um, so it is something that I think somebody reads about or sees. And then, like you said, when it comes time to purchase a gift, um, or splurge on yourself after you're celebrating something, that's sort of when right. it comes to mind. So that's right. Yeah. 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 You're not disrupting the throw market. I right. mean, you are, but you know, <laughs> what, um, do you, what do you so, mean? <laughs> I mean, you totally are. Did I say totally. you're not? I mean, you totally, I totally are. totally am disrupting the throw market. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to talk to you about, I mean, you, you've mentioned that you have children and that you're married and mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're running this business. Talk to us a little bit about what apps, what third party platforms, what resources are you using that are sort of helping you to make your work and your life a little bit more simple and not that life is simple, but just <laughs> efficient in any way? Can you recommend anything? I don't use a ton, but I will say that my website's built on Shopify and um, I built it all by myself except for some of the custom functionality behind the wedding throw page. Um, and I think their interface is easy but difficult enough that you can do all the things that you might want to customize. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity to make your site be what you want, even kind of from a beginner standpoint. And they have a great app that goes along with it and I can pull reports and, and that kind of thing. Um, I use Evernote just for notes and like the organization of content and data and ideas and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, I've used Hootsuite for years for social media. Are they finally including um, Instagram? 
They are, but I don't use it for Instagram, to be honest. Okay. okay. Um, I use native channel Instagram, so... Um, oh, that's a good one. We haven't heard that one. I well, just one. just Instagram itself, I meant. Sorry. Oh, 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 yeah. sorry, sorry. <laughs> Got it. Um, but yeah, I think those are kind of like those are the programs and the apps that I'm in most often. Nothing too fancy. And then how about scheduling your day? Scheduling my day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've got kids. You're Is running that a real this company. <laughs> it's a real question. And I want an answer. So I know what to do on Monday. It's no, funny. I, I think it's, I mean, when you think of, we talk about these apps and I, I need to rephrase the way I asked this question, because I think often the resource is something that is, it come, it, it's so simple to you, but for others of us listening, it's like, that's genius. Like people who are like, I don't answer email until after four o'clock, or I always make sure that I take a long lunch. And that's when I go do the kids school, blah, 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 or whatever it is. Like, what's the thing that you're doing to to ma- I'm not even going to use the word balance, but to manage that. I'm not. Okay, like, great. All, Thanks. Like, we'll move on. <laughs> in, all, in all transparency, I have been working for myself for so long that it's literally all in my head. And I'm surprised I don't lose my mind half the time. But yeah. I don't have a schedule. I don't have a routine necessarily. I just wing it. Yeah. <laughs> and that, but, but you know what? It sounds like that's working for you. And there are some personality types where that wouldn't work. And so they have to have sort of a a schedule or they have to understand that on Mondays and Wednesdays, you know, I I don't work at all because I need that opportunity to have the winging it Mm -hmm. um, in my week. But then on these other days, it's it's super regimented. So it's good to know that you can have (laughs) that sort of success and the imbalance, which equals balance at some point, I guess, based on your personality, based on, you know, because if it wasn't working for you, you'd have to rethink it. Exactly. (laughs) At least for now, Um, it's still working. At least for now, at least for now. (laughs) So um, I just want to ask you, do you have any sort of parting advice for all these entrepreneurial women who are listening, what is the one thing Mm -hmm. that you'd like to say to them about starting a business or even growing a business? Mm, I think I would tell them to trust their gut. Um, Mm. I put off launching a new business for a really long time because I was just scared and I didn't trust myself and I second-guessed all of my ideas. And, you know, I could look back on all those years and be frustrated that I put it off for so long, but at the end of the day, I started the right business at the right time. So I think there's a lot to be said for trusting your gut And I would also say lean on your network, your friends, your family, your colleagues, even strangers who offer to give you advice and help. It really does go a long way. And I think a lot of people are uncomfortable accepting help. Mm -hmm. Um, But those people wouldn't be offering it if they didn't believe in you. And I don't think any of us get anywhere without the support of other people. Amen. That's right. That's right. That's awesome. Way to wrap it up. Wow. (laughs) Um, Well, we're not completely done. So we have this fun little thing that we call our quick six. And I'm just going to ask you these six questions and just top of mind, say whatever, whatever you want to say. So do you prefer a nine to five or a flex schedule? I think I know, given what you said earlier. (laughs) Flex, please. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And for vacations, uh, do you prefer the mountains or the beach? Ooh, probably the beach. Even though and the mountains are gorgeous, but beach. Yes, they are. Yeah, I think it's like, where do you, it's not where, what, which one do you enjoy or like, but it's which one makes it feel like a vacation that you're like away. Yeah. Um, work or home? Uh, no, no. 
<laughs> not work or home, but work from home or <laughs> office. <laughs> this is a tough one because I worked from home for a really long time and I've gotten really used to it and I'm uh-huh. pretty good at it. Um, but I also don't mind being in an office and being around other people and collaborating. Um, so that's a difficult one for me to answer. Um, I'm kind of split, I guess. Okay. Um, and then do you prefer working alone or with a team? And it's, it's hard for us to have a sense of, do you have a team of people outside of the manufacturers? Do you have people that are helping with sales or people who are helping with administrative stuff? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily. I, I have, I have one gal who's doing a little bookkeeping for me. Uh, It's kind of more around taxes, but I pretty much work by myself. And like I said, I've been doing it for a really long time. So I'm pretty comfortable with that said, I'm in contact with people constantly and I love collaborating. So I would say that I have a team no matter what because I couldn't be doing this by myself. But in terms of like being in the presence of people, I'm usually not. (laughs) And would you want to be? Do you want that to incorporate that more? I think think a blend is nice for me. Some people just don't like working alone at all. I definitely like to work by myself, but I also like being around people too. Okay. Um, we think this is the toughest question yet. <laughs> Thai or Mexican food? It is a tough question. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sort of split down the middle on so many of these. Um, I am like my two favorite types of food are Thai and Mexican. Seriously. Yeah. Um, so if I had to lean one direction, I'd probably say Mexican, but I'm, okay. I, I love Thai food. Do they, does it have to be spicy? No, I don't like spicy Thai food. Oh. <laughs> well, that, is there good Thai food that's not spicy? <laughs> I, I love spicy, guess but so. yes, yeah, I think uh, no. Obviously, there is. Um, I'm going to get some weird like judgment um, <laughs> on like how Thai food doesn't have to be spicy to be good. To, That's why I get all those we- dirty looks. Yeah, <laughs> can I have, like, can I have oh. number one on spice, please? <laughs> there you go. Um, and then you know we we call this podcast Liberty Sessions, and our company is Liberty. Our URL Liberty for her. Um, what does it mean for you to be liberated? What is that mm. what does that term sort of bring up for you? I think for me it means having the strength and confidence to do the things that I've always wanted to do and to do the things that mean the most to me. So I feel like we live in fear of so many things, whether it be well, for me, flying, because being on airplanes, like the last place on earth I want to be, um, wow. even though I love to travel, which yeah. really stinks. So whether it be, you know, flying or starting a family or being single or starting a business, um, being liberated is a moment that, you know, hopefully everyone experiences at least once in their life. I think it's empowering. And I think it's that defining moment when we've stepped over that threshold into the unknown and feel okay with whatever the outcome will be. That's good. That's really good. Thank you so much for that, Hala. Thank, Thank you for you. this time. I'm excited for people to to listen and to get lots of good information on how they can move their business um, forward. So we really appreciate that. And to all you Liberty listeners, we will see you guys next week. Take care. Bye. Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty Sessions on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to launch and grow your own ventures. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty For Her. 
And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Windham and music by Jordan Flower. 